0: Please be seated. Love so divine demands my life and my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at these words written by your Apostle John so many years ago, we want to thank you for them. We want to pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us in our situation from these words. And we thank you, Father, that so much love was given for us. Amen. Well, you'll see the title of uh, tonight's sermon. We're in this series in 1 John. If you haven't been with us before... Uh, Jonathan reminded us right at the beginning of this series that the Apostle John was an old man and uh, he was getting towards the end of his life and he was writing to a group of Christians in churches around Ephesus. And the title of our sermon given to me tonight was in these five verses, 1 John 2 verses 12 to 17, A Certain Church. In an uncertain world. Well, John writes, doesn't he, in a gentle way, in a loving way to these people that he's writing to. He wants to reassure the Christians in their faith and he also wants to counter false teaching. So, what will this certain church actually look like, and what does an uncertain world look like? Well, these are addressed in these two short passages that we have got in front of us. Uh, We're on uh, page 1227, uh, if you want to follow, or it'll be on the screen. Those are the verses that relate to a certain church, 12 to 14, and then an uncertain world, verses 15 to 17. Now, as I was uh, thinking and praying about this, uh, I was wondering uh, if Richard James, who is going to be our new rector, asked us individually, or asked the PCC, to uh, compile a report on the spirituality of this church that he has been appointed to, what would it include? What would we say in that report if we completed that exercise? What does our church look like spiritually? And is it possible actually to measure this? We love measuring things, don't we? We live in an age that loves to measure. You can barely go through a news uh, bulletin without seeing some statistics, often in the format of something like this. This is a measure of the country's GDP. That basically is how much the country produces or earns over a relatively short period of time. And we love that, don't we? Our society loves that because it enables us to set targets, to see whether progress has been made or to find fault. Things have changed a lot over the last 40 years. When I started teaching, for instance, in uh, September uh, 1976 at Helston High School. Would you believe it? There was no national curriculum for 11 to 14 year olds. There was no SAT tests for 7, 11, or 14 year olds. Yes, we did. We did teach the pupils to do GCSEs and well O levels to start with, and then CSEs and Jewish But there were no league tables. There were no comparisons made between schools. And I imagine it was very much the same in the NHS and other public services. Things have changed a lot. And the church has gone down, to some extent, the same route. So we get, for instance, things like this. Now, you probably can't see the key, unfortunately, but basically it's showing the uh, numbers of people in all age churches. Where it's uh, a blank white, it's a minus figure, and the darker it gets, the greater the increase of people involved. Or we get figures like this, for instance, the number of baptisms, or the number on the electoral roll, the number of attending ser- services, etc. But does any of this actually tell us anything about the spirituality of our national church, or our local church, or our individual church? What does the spirituality of the church look like according to John? Well, in 1 John 2, chapter 2, he's writing to these churches and he addresses this within these first two verses that we are looking at. He describes the spirituality in a way that they would understand. For instance, if you look at the screen, I have highlighted in red the words that he uses. So he uses words like little children, fathers, young men, words that they would understand and words that we would understand as well. So he addresses these three groups within those churches. So what will it look like? Well, it will look something like this. Firstly, we've got the children in the faith, verse 12 to 14. And these are Christians. Yes, they have experienced forgiveness. They are followers of Jesus. They have therefore known the Father. But they are young, not necessarily in physical years, but they are young in their faith. There may be some problems but they are Christians. And this is what he addresses to them. This group are at the beginning of their discipleship. And therefore, like in a physical world that we live in, with children, we expect children to grow, we expect them to go through the different uh, aspects of life, teenage years, young adults, uh, adults, and then maturity. John would expect the same. There may be some problems, as they are in the physical life, but we would expect growth and change. And surely, we would expect in any church community to have some of these people. Secondly, he talks about the young in the faith. The young in the faith. Now, in this group, what he's referring to, in our physical world, he's referring to what we would call perhaps teenagers or young adults. And, of course, we expect teenagers and young adults to have lots of energy, lots of dreams, lots of drive and ambition to succeed. And John says that this group are like that. They are active people. They are strong people. Not strong in the physical sense, but they're strong in the spiritual sense. Why are they strong? Because they allow God's word to dwell in their minds, becoming a part of their person. Now, in our context, of course, um, it points us, That this group of people are very active in their relationship and following Jesus. They are active in that they are fighting the evil one, John says. They are fighting the evil. How can they do it? Well, they do it because they have regular inputs of his word. Remember what the psalmist said about the young man. The psalmist says, How can a young man keep his way pure? We're only living by according to your word, Psalm 119, verse 9. So these young Christians are active. They fight against the enemy of the Christian life, and that is, of course, is the evil one. And as with any fighting, there will be cuts and bruises, setbacks and victories. Their faith will be tried, and there will be doubts as they grow in their faith. And, of course, it's with this group in particular that we would expect most training to take place. Do we recognize this group within our community here at Trinity? And then thirdly, John identifies the third group, and these third group of people are those that are most mature. Again, not necessarily in years, but spiritually Adult in the congregation, what some have called fathers. These are the group of people that have been following Jesus for some time. They have a deep relationship with God and they have a wisdom that comes from this relationship. And it's these people that have the wisdom that they can use to train and help the babes in the faith and the young people, and allow that cycle to go on. So do you see we've got three groups of people in this church? We've got the babes, or the children, the young, and the mature, or the fathers. All following on, one from the other, all necessary for a church. And this is John's pattern of the spiritual structure within the local churches that he's writing to. So do we recognize this within our church? Do we recognize it as a church and as individuals? And if we are thinking about ourselves as individually, where do we come within that group? What would our report to Richard say concerning the spiritual structure of our church? Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that John, as I said at the beginning, he's very concise In his words, he makes no comment on the proportion of each of these groups within the church. So what proportion is there within ours? Well, surely, if we want our new rector to come in and to develop discipleship programs, teaching programs, preaching as well as evangelistic activities within the parish, he will need to have some idea of this within the church that he is coming to. So John then, in these first two verses, identifies the structure of the churches that he is writing to. And then he goes on to take, if you like, a bit of a side turn, because he then moves on to the practical aspects of this group of people living in the world. Now, what does he mean by the world? Is it the geography of the planet? No, it's not. He's talking about a group of people and how they should respond to this world. So, uh, one of the commentators, Dodd, said of this passage, the word world here is meaning the life of human society as organized under the power of God. Of the evil one. And John gives them a relatively simple command. He tells them that they are not to love the world. Do not love the world. Verse 15. And he gives two arguments why they are not to love the world. That is, if you remember, the human society under the power of the evil one. Firstly, he says, you can't love the world and the Father. You can't love the world and the Father. Now, if you remember, Jesus makes a very similar uh, statement. He says to his disciples, you can't love, you can't have two masters. You can't have a master of mammon and a master of God. You can't be under two masters. And secondly, he says, the second reason he gives for not loving the world is found in verse 17, where he says, the world is transient. That is, it's passing on. It's not going to be here forever. Whereas those that are living in God's will will live forever. Two reasons then why they're not to love the world. Now, some people would see there's a contradiction here in John's writing. Some of the commentators make this point. They say, how can he say that they are not to love the world when he writes in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for it? So Jesus clearly tells us that God loves the world. So why shouldn't they? Well, we can understand it by saying that God, in fact, loves the people in the world. He loves the individuals, but not the world as organized as an evil system under the dominion of Satan and not of God. And so Christians, then, are actually called to love God. That was the first command and the second command, to love others, but not to love the world. We read of this again in a bit later in John's uh, letter Here, in 1 John John 4:20. John writes, "If anyone says, "I love God and hates his brother," he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, who he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen." So they can't or shouldn't, hate their brother and sister in Christ. In fact, if they do so, they're living in blindness and darkness. Now note this is about the church. But what about their attitudes and behavior towards those in the world that they live with, those that don't follow Jesus and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior? Well, John calls this group the world, but he acknowledges that the world can also be anywhere else, including the Christians within their minds and attitudes, when the love of Christ and the love of others is, Isn't reigning supreme. Now this is called worldliness, and there's been a lot said about worldliness over the years of Christendom. Some people have said worldliness is all about what we do, what who we mix with, the places we go and the activities we enjoy. So, when I was a young man, when I was in my uh, latter teenage years, I suppose, I was taught very strongly that pubs were evil places. And, uh, And the reason I was taught that was because the people doing the teaching thought that they encouraged a worldly lifestyle and the risk of abusing alcohol. They also said that dancing was frowned upon because it was imagined to encourage sexual license and arousing behavior, which may well be true if it was not controlled. But what John is talking about here is, is that it can be an internal as well as an external thing. It can be internal in our thoughts and our minds, because it starts in our hearts and our thought life and our attitudes. So, John writes in verse 15 that there are three characteristics by which our attitudes can be measured to see whether, in fact, they are worldly or not. First one is this, a craving, verse 15, a craving for physical pleasures, a preoccupation with gratifying physical desires. Now, as we think about the world in which we live in the 21st century, isn't this something that we identify with? A craving for physical presence. Isn't it when we turn on our televisions, the adverts are absolutely full of it? Whether that be for sexual gratification, maybe material gratification, food and drink, and all the rest of it. And it's a danger for all of us here, we need to recognize the danger that, they po- that it poses to our hearts and minds. How much are we, in fact, controlled by them? Well, can I suggest that if we're submitted to Jesus, if the Holy Spirit lives within us, then surely we should not be controlled by these desires. Secondly, another craving, a craving for everything we see which comes from a coveting nature, a nature that wants to collect material things, bowing down to the God of materialism. Well, again, as we look at the society that we live in, isn't this what our society is built upon? The wealth of our society is built upon stimulating and satisfying the God of consumerism and materialism. And so as I've already showed you with that graph. We measure our society by the GDP figures, the growth figures. We measure it by the growth of sales in the shops, the rise and fall of the stock exchange. We speak of successful people as those people who have obtained the most in material possessions. We honour and respect those who show the greatest energy in pursuing wealth and success. Nowhere do we hear in our society today, or at least I haven't heard recently, of a learning to be grateful and satisfied with what we have. Well, surely, as followers of Jesus, if we learn that all good things come from God and we thank him for them, this gives us a godly perspective on his goodness to us, and we're not controlled by this. But thirdly, the third aspect that John picks out, uh, uh, thirdly, a pride in our achievements and possessions. A pride in our achievements and possessions. And again, as you look at our society, aren't we dominated, aren't we obsessed by the status of people? During the last 30 years, because of television and lately, of course, because of the social media, we see the rise of this. The rise of the star status, the celebrity status. We see it, don't we, in the selfie generation. Who is the most important in our world? Well, of course, ourselves. Now, this, of course, is no new thing. We read about it in the Bible, in Genesis 3, verse 6, where the serpent tempted Eve in these areas of self. Yes, you can choose what you want, when you want. We saw it also with Jesus when he was tempted in the desert. So it's nothing new, but it's perhaps just the methods and the amount we are open to them that may be different. Some of you might recognise this as a picture of today's society. The selfie society. But what about John? What's he saying? Well, remember, John gives them two reasons for not loving the world. He gives them two reasons. He writes, you cannot love the world and love the Father. Or put it in other words, you can't love the Father and love the world. You can't love the Father and love the world. Verse 15. Second reason given, the world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And of course, we believe this, don't we? Because Christ's new age has come. Because of his death on the cross, the present age is doomed and it's going to disintegrate. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31 says this, For this world in its present form is passing away, and those consumed with worldly lusts will pass away with it. Only those who do the will of God will live forever. And Jesus stated, those that do God's will, as his brothers and sisters, will live as he does, resurrected. And so the choice between, for us tonight is, as it was for those Christians in Ephesus that John was writing to, is still the same. The choice between God and the world, as seen between the lusts of the world and the will of God. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, well, how do we then keep ourselves from succumbing to the temptations and from loving the world? How can we keep ourselves from loving the world? Of course, John doesn't write about the world that we have in front of us today. But he does write about the temptations that come to our minds and hearts. And he says this, Keeping God's word close to our hearts and minds by regular Bible reading, by keeping his word close to it. Now, we at Trinity have a tradition of, you know, saying that Bible reading is good, and we will try to encourage one another. But we need to do more than Bible reading. We need to actually do it as well as read it, otherwise it becomes an academic exercise. So firstly, keep God's words close to our hearts. Secondly, by regular prayer, committing what we do each day, what we're thinking to God. I've never heard of anyone who prays to God concerning the lusts of the flesh. If we're committing our lives each day in prayer to God, we're not likely to be so tempted. Thirdly, by submission to the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. The Holy Spirit, which we believe lives within us when we become Christians, is totally holy without sin. And the Holy Spirit will show us what is wrong and help us to overcoming. We're told in the New Testament, fourthly, to meet with other believers on a regular basis. Well, of course, we're here tonight. But uh, services aren't the only way. We can meet in smaller groups. And in fact, it's when we meet in smaller groups that we can become... We can become uh, accountable to other Christians in our lives. It's gone. Never mind. Doesn't matter. That was the last point. Being accountable to other Christians for our lives. So, I think there are five ways in which then we can encourage one another and help ourselves in facing worldliness. Keeping God in our minds and hearts through His reading his words by regular prayer by regular submission to the Holy Spirit, meeting with other Christians and being accountable to other Christians for our lives. But we do need to recognise, don't we, that worldliness is a challenge to all of God's people. It was to these people, obviously, in the towns around Ephesus. And it has been down throughout the ages. John warns the people, ''Do not love the world.'' Because if you do, there will be no room for the love of the Father in you. You will be conforming to the controls of the evil one, which eventually will pass away. And so as followers of Jesus, that we should set our lives at a higher level, doing the will of God, which will last forever. So as I said right at the beginning, John writes very concisely, and in this short passage, he challenges us concerning the spirituality of our church and us personally, how we live. Does the love and worship of Jesus take that preeminent place in our lives? Or are we controlled by the love and lusts of this world? Well, friends, the choice is ours. Only we can make that choice individually. But let's encourage one another as we meet together, as we stand and chat over coffee, as we meet in small groups during the week. Let's encourage us. Let's be aware that we do live in a world that is under the submission of the evil one, but that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, offers us ways out from that. Amen.